Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. The first two years of Risk episodes, the ones from October 2009 to October 2011, were behind a paywall for a while. So now, every other Thursday, we're rerunning them for free. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the 17th episode of Risk ever to be heard. It premiered in May of 2010, and it's called Blindsided. I got armies in Camp Chaka, the training in the rain. I'm all up in the Congo and I'm taking the Ukraine. It's risk. It's risk. It certainly is risk, folks, and you certainly are motherfuckers. But is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share? I would say so. I'm Kevin Allison. That was Morning Bell up top. This is Fujia and Miyagi behind me. And the subject of the hour is blindsided. When you didn't see it coming. Tales of the unexpected and the bizarre. We'll start with an old friend, a man who's just funny as hell and a great guy currently head writer on late night with jimmy fallon it's 80 miles with a story we call the deuce my story um starts with a girl uh in the early 90s my first job in new york city was working at the video company buns of steel made uh, (laughs) exercise videos and uh, I didn't exercise, and I didn't make the videos. I tracked the orders of the videos as they were shipped around the country. And one of the girls that I worked with was a salesperson named Dana. And Dana and I, like uh, a lot of young 20-somethings that have jobs, uh, flirted a lot at work. And we, I thought there was something going on there, and uh, I had a little bit of a crush on her. And so one day I asked her if she wanted to get together over the weekend. And she said, uh, sure, why don't we get together on Sunday and go to the park and hang out? And I said, that sounds like a great idea. It's a, kind of a, you know, not a high-pressure type situation. You can get to know each other, and maybe we'll make out at some point. Um, so uh, Saturday night, I go out with my friends, as I did for about the first six years that I was in New York City, and I got wasted. And uh, Sunday morning rolls around, and I am super hungover, like crazy hungover. My stomach feels like there's a, a battle going on. 
uh, inside it, and something horrible is going to happen at some point. Uh, but I have a date with Dana, so I'm going to go for it anyway. So I go meet her in the park, and it's a hot summer day in the middle of Central Park, and I'm wearing a t-shirt and some cut-off duckhead khaki shorts, and we go to Sheep's Meadow, and we uh, spread out a blanket, and we're laying in the sun, and we're talking. She's got her sunglasses on. She's telling me a story. And as I'm listening to the story, my stomach starts to gurgle. Noises start to happen. I start to feel like an event is about to take place. <laughs> and um, I guess this is where the blindsided part of my story happens. So I went to poot. And instead of just pooting, I released a floodgate of diarrhea into my shorts. And I'm not talking about just a little bit. I'm not talking about a little accident. I'm talking about quarts of diarrhea filled my shorts. And I'm laying on the ground next to this girl that I have a crush on. And she's telling a story, and I'm sitting there, and I'm going, all right, this has happened. This is the reality on the ground. I'm a 25-year-old man, and I'm laying next to this lady, and I've got a pants full of shit. And I have to deal with this situation. Now she's talking this entire time, which made, makes me think, well, she doesn't know what's happened. So I could possibly get out of this situation. And so I, um, I reach down and I, I grab my shorts and I gather them up against my legs, forming sort of like a seal. And I, uh, when I feel like I've got a good enough seal, I go for it. And I say, Dana, uh, I'm going to go uh, take a leak in the bathroom in Sheets Meadow. And I, she's like, great, all right, I'll see you in a minute. And I stand up, and I back away from Dana, holding my pants against my legs, and containing most of the evidence, not all of it. There's some runaway strays down the leg. Sorry, this is what happened, guys. I'm not going to spare you any of the details. And I go towards the bathroom, and I'm thinking, oh my god, I cannot believe this has happened. I hope I don't see anyone I know. I just want this problem to go away. I just want to deal with it. So I go to the bathroom, and it's a weekend day in Central Park, and there's a huge long line, right? So I start to cut, and I'm like, you know, because I've got kind of an emergency here. And so, you know, sure enough, some guy's like, hey, guy, there's a line over here. And like, I don't want to tell everybody, but like, yeah, but I shit in my pants. <laughs> so I, uh, I go get in line and I'm standing there and I'm holding my pants and, this, and it's just a horrible situation. And I look back and there's this boy, little boy behind me. And I look at him and he looks at me and he looks down at this trickle of diarrhea going down my leg. It's going into my sneaker. And I look at him and he looks at me and there's like a little moment there where I'm like, come on, bro, be cool. <laughs> don't say anything. <laughs> 
And I think he was scared. So he didn't say anything. And so finally it's my turn and I go into the bathroom and I go into the bathroom stall and uh, the door won't stay shut. It keeps swinging open. So I have to use one hand to hold the door shut. I spread my legs and put my shorts down, forming kind of like a little basket. And a miracle, there's um, toilet paper in the bathroom, which I couldn't believe. This is interesting. Very true, every detail of the story is true. On the ground is about an inch of pee and water. And for some reason, someone has taken a shit next to the toilet. And so that's going on on the ground. I've got this situation with my pants. I don't want my pants getting down on the ground and getting someone else's shit on it. So I have to form this like little basket. I start cleaning up as best I can. I'm kind of laughing at this point. I can't believe what's going on. Um, uh, I, I get most of it taken care of. You know, I'm just like throwing everything into the commode. And uh, I'm starting to get kind of, you know, like I'm like, I might get out of the situation alive. Just about that time, cops raid the bathroom. Uh, there's been some sort of sting operation uh, where they've uh, arrested a bunch of pot dealers in Central Park. And so they rush into the bathroom and they start screaming, everybody out, everybody in the bathroom out, all civilians out of the bathroom. And they're like throwing up criminals against the wall and frisking them and screaming and everything. And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I still have a major mess to clean up. So I get, I get as much of it cleaned up as I possibly can. I pull my, my uh, shorts up to my nipples and I untuck my t-shirt down so it hangs down below the stain uh, on the back of my pants. And it looks like I'm wearing a dress, but you can't see the big diarrhea stain in my britches anymore. Uh, and so when I've got myself pretty much together, I walk out, the cops completely flip out. There's criminals everywhere. They're like, we told everybody to get out of here. Get the fuck out of here. What are you doing? You want to get arrested? And I was like, no, I don't. I just want to get out of here. Go back to my date. Um, so I go back to, uh, to Dana and I, uh, I say, Dana, I was like, I'm not feeling too good. I was like, I think I need to go home. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, sure, let's go. And so she's like, um... And I was like, I'm just gonna take the subway. She goes, I'll come with you. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> and so we, we walked across the park to the subway. I'm wearing this t-shirt dress. I know I smell like diarrhea. And Dana isn't saying anything. She's not letting on that she knows anything. So I'm thinking like, all right, well, let's just keep going with it. We get on the subway, you know, uh, it stinks. Uh, kind of covering up my odor, I guess. And so we ride a, a few stops. We get off at 23rd Street. She goes to her apartment. I go back to my apartment. I take off the clothes. I take a shower. I put the clothes in a bag. I burn them. I'm home free. I can't fucking believe that I got out of that situation. About an hour later, phone rings. It's Dana. Dana's like, hey, Miles, how you feeling? And I'm like, so much better. So much better. And she's like, well, do you want to come over for dinner? I'm making pasta. And I'm like, she definitely doesn't know. She wouldn't be inviting me over to dinner if she knew that I'd shit in my pants on our date. So I'm like, yeah, I definitely want to come over for dinner. So I go over to her house and she lives with a roommate. The roommate's not there. She shows me around her apartment. She shows me the little bar area. She shows me her couch. 
She shows me her bedroom. We sit in there for a little while and look at some pictures. Um, she shows me around. And then she starts, you know, making the pasta in the kitchen. And we're yelling across the apartment back and forth, you know, talking about what's going on. Finally, she's just like, Miles, this is ridiculous. Well, stop yelling across the apartment. Come in here and talk to me while I finish dinner. And I was like, okay. So I get up and I'm walking towards the kitchen. And as I walk, I reach back and I scratch my butt. And I pull back a handful of shit. And my mind melts. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Am I, am I shitting through my pants now and I don't even know that I'm doing it? What is happening? And I look around her apartment and everywhere that I've sat in the last hour is a big shit stain. There's a shit stain on her couch. There's a shit stain on her fucking bed. There's on the bar stool. There's shit everywhere. And I'm just sitting there with shit in my hand and I'm just like, I'm kind of about ready to start crying because I don't know what's happening. And Dana comes in and she looks at me and she gets this really angry look on her face. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on, Dana. <laughs> There's shit all over your apartment. <laughs> and she sits there for a second and she goes, God damn it. She goes, my roommate's cat shit on the sofa. And you sat in it. And she gets super apologetic. I'd sat in cat shit. I'd never been so relieved to sit in cat shit. I was over the fucking moon about the fact that I just sat in some cat shit. I was so excited that I, I literally started laughing and smiling, and I was like, that's okay! And so she's secretly going like, this is a weird reaction to finding out you just said cat shit. I was happy about it. And she's like, I'm so sorry, let me give you some shorts. And I'm gonna wash your clothes. And so she, I, she gives me some of her roommate shorts, I put them on, and she's like, we have dinner. And she takes it and she washes them. She comes back, they're dry and everything. And she's like, I, again, Miles, I am so sorry that happened. I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, Dana, please, it is fine. Don't worry about it. She had no idea that two and a half hours, three hours earlier, I had been a foot and a half away from her with shorts full of diarrhea. So uh, I guess the coda to the story is that I, I never fessed up. And uh, we, I moved on to another job. We kind of lost touch. Uh, we would kind of call each other every once in a while. And uh, about a year and a half, two years later, we were on the phone. And I was like, oh, Dana. It's like, remember that day that we went to Central Park? And... And, I, and I, I had to go home because I didn't feel good. She's like, yeah, she's like, she had a stomach thing or something. She didn't feel good. And I was like, yeah. I was like, did you know that I, I shit my pants and filled them full of diarrhea that day? And all I heard was like the phone just go <laughs> drop on the ground. And then about 30 seconds later, her picking it up, just like crying, laughing. She had no idea the entire time. But, so I guess I uh, was blindsided, but uh, I got away with it. Thanks for that. <laughs> Story. It's about who, who, who. Sit down. Uh, who, who. 
I teach high school English, and part of the thing that we do as English teachers is we prepare the students for the SAT exam. And they always say, what advice can you give us that will help us do better? So I tell them about when I took the Praxis exam, which is the standardized test that you take to be a teacher. Like the SATs, you have to show your driver's license to be admitted into the room. So I showed my driver's license to the proctor, and of course I tend to change my hair style and color quite frequently. So in my driver's license, I looked completely different. And so the proctor said, I don't think this is you. You cannot come and take this test. This is a falsified ID. And I said, yeah, certainly it is. I falsified an ID to come take a standardized test because there's such a draw for that. And so I was frustrated and I argued with the proctor a little bit and he was angry and he was like, no, and I had to find other forms of identification in my wallet and I was digging through. And finally, he said, okay, I guess this is you, although it really looks nothing like you, will permit you to take this test. I already, though, had set the groundwork for a bad relationship with this man. And so when I went into the room, there was only one seat left, and it was next to the window, and it was open, and it was a beautiful day. And I was thinking, oh, I just wish I were outside, and I wish I were not having to take this standardized test all day. Now I'm going to have to sit by this window and look out and think about how I could be spending my day. So I get my test, and I'm probably two hours in, and I'm writing an essay. And I turned away from the test for a moment to think about something. And all of a sudden, when I looked back, I saw that there was a huge squirrel that had jumped through the window and was sitting on my test. And it was just nibbling like at a walnut or something. I thought, only me. So I look up and of course the proctor is reading the newspaper. And I said, excuse me, sir, there's a squirrel on my desk. With that, he throws down the paper and he comes over and he said, let me show all of you ladies in the room how to take care of a rodent. And with great burly alacrity, he grabbed the squirrels by the tail, whipped it around, threw it out the window and pushed the window shut. And then he said to me, we'll have no more of those shenanigans. I continue my test. Now we're maybe two more hours in. And all of a sudden, I flipped my paper over to see the prompt and flipped it back over to write my response. And the proctor said to me, you in the hall. You're done. You're going home. He brings me into the hall and he says, uh, we've caught you cheating. Although it seems virtually impossible on a standardized test, somehow you've managed to do it and we're sending you home. And I was thinking each one of these tests was about $200. I'm going to lose so much money and I'm not going to become a teacher. And I'm like, I wasn't cheating. I don't know what you're talking about. He said, empty your pockets. Empty all of my pockets. Empty your purse. I empty everything. He said, where is the cheat sheet? I said, I don't have a cheat sheet. I don't know what you're talking about. He said, I can't deal with this anymore. This is out of my hands. We're going to go down and review this with a board of people who have been specially chosen by the Praxis people to review cases of tests, ethics, and security. Down we go. Me, you know, clutching my test, tear-stained, very upset. We get down to the board, and the proctor says, let me tell you about this woman. We've had a problem with her since the moment she walked in. And the first problem we had is she falsified ID. And the woman said to me, oh, you're disgusting. And I said, I didn't falsify it. And they said, shut up. Then they said, the next problem we had with her is that she's cheating. 
And the woman said, you're cheating. And he said, I saw a cheat sheet, but she somehow disposed of it. And the woman said, how would she get a cheat sheet? It's impossible for her to bring something like that into the test. And the man said, well, I'm not pointing any fingers, but I will say there was one other suspicious thing that happened with her. And the woman said, what? And he said, halfway through the test, a squirrel came through the window and it appeared to have something in its mouth. And the woman said, what did it have in its mouth? And I said, what did it have? I was also curious. And he said, it looked to me as though it were a small paper scroll. And the woman said, it was your pet? You've trained your pet to bring you some helpful answers? This is pathetic. And I said, no one here can actually believe this. No one can believe this story to be true. And the the proctor and the woman were like, you are a sad person that you and your little pet can come in here and try to take this test. This is sad. You're going to be a teacher. You lack ethical character. You have a pet squirrel. And I'm going, I don't have a pet. I don't have a squirrel. I don't have a scroll. I don't know what you're talking about. Finally, they said, we'll let you take this test because we can't find any evidence of this cheat sheet that you supposedly had, but you have to take it here, flanked by two proctors to make sure you're not cheating. So years later now, I'm a teacher, and the students always ask me for advice. They always say, what can we do to do better? And I said, I have only one piece of advice, and it will serve you well. Don't sit by the window. Perhaps that sounds vaguely amusing. More than vaguely, I'd say. Downright squirrely, which is also the name of that story by Carrie Heidecker. We're going to hear from Mark Allen now. In the 90s, he was the king of all go-go boys in New York. I spent many bar-hopping nights paying homage to his waggling behind. But this story is more about his suspicious packages. I'd like to take you back to 1987. I was living in Dallas, Texas, and I had a very good friend named Buck. And one thing that Buck and I loved to do was go on road trips to Austin, which is about two and a half hours north of Dallas up Highway 35. And Buck and I loved to go on these road trips together so much, and we considered ourselves such great friends that we kept promising each other that one day we were gonna drive to Austin naked. And we talked about it so much to each other and our friends, we kind of felt like we had to do it. So let me just tell you, naked driving should never be planned. But since we were young and naive and knew nothing about spontaneity, one sunny August day, Buck held the wheel of my 1980 silver Toyota Corona hatchback as I simultaneously drove and carefully pulled every thread of clothing I had on off. And then put my hands back on the wheel, and Buck got undressed, and there we were, driving without having stopped, barreling up Highway 35, nude, and, you know, we were like, yay! And, uh, of course, it didn't feel hilarious or surreal. It felt incredibly awkward, incredibly pathetic. Uh, Neither of us could say a word to each other. And so after a long silence, we were like, let's get in the right-hand lane, and then as cars slowly pass us in the left-hand lane, we'll honk at them and wave so they can see us. So the only cars that were high up enough to look down into the bed of my car to see there were indeed two penises driving next to them were cars with like big beds, like giant pickup trucks, you know? 
So after that livened up the mood a bit, we were like, you know, let's put our clothes back on now. And, you know, uh, we did it in reverse order and he held the wheel and I got dressed and we were like, we did it. And uh, we're going down the road and just as I'm stomping my last shoe onto my left foot on the floorboard, last piece of thing I had to put on, all of a sudden we hear, woo! And I look in the rearview mirror and there's a highway patrolman tailing right behind us and he has his lights on. And we're just like, oh my God, oh my God, what did you pull over, pull over, what do we do, what's the plan, what are we gonna say, what are we, you know, you whisper to each other when that happens, I don't know. So anyway, we came up with a plan, two points. Number one, when the highway patrolman brings up new driving, act confused. And number two, when new driving is established, the fact is we were driving with our shirts off only and anyone who saw anything else is just imagining things. So the highway patrolman came and he took our driver's licenses and then he had us get out of the car. And when he was doing that, two local police cars pulled up behind him and joined him. And they were all kind of, the five of us are standing behind my car and I'm waiting for the highway patrolman to bring up the new driving so I can deny it. And sure enough, he looks at me and he says, do you mind if I search your car? And I just went, um, and then he goes, is there anything in the car you'd like to tell me about now? And he's putting his gloves on. Anything incriminating or illegal, you'd like to get out of the way? And I think about it for a minute, and then I look him in the eye, and I say, no, there isn't. And that was the truth, there wasn't. So they open my door and my hatchback, and they're searching the car, and I'm standing back there with Buck, and I'm thinking, okay, they're gonna bring up the new driving, just make sure you deny it, and you know, just, you know, I had never been arrested, I had no record, and I thought, just keep denying, if I confess, I'll have no choice but to prosecute, and just, you know, uh, just keep denying, they'll probably just put us in jail for the night and let us go in the morning, even if we keep lying, because I'll just scare us straight and then it'll all be over. And as I'm thinking this, the highway patrolman starts walking really quickly over to me and he grabs my wrist, he puts it behind my back and clank, clank, and he handcuffs me and he throws me under the hood of his car and he starts shaking this clear plastic baggie in my face and it's filled with grass and this giant thing of rolling papers. And he goes, I found this in your glove compartment. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm going, oh no, oh no, 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 oh, uh, I totally swear to God, I forgot that that bag of grass had indeed been in my glove compartment, or I would have told him. And there's actually a very good reason I forgot. And I thought, okay, we're gonna lie about the new driving, just, but I better be 100% honest about that bag of grass and just get it out of the way because it's complicating things. And he looks at me and says, what are the contents of this bag? And I look up at him and with a shaky voice, I tell him the truth and I say, it's grass that I took off the top of James Dean's gravesite in Fairmont, Indiana. And that's what was actually in that bag. I was a huge James Dean fan at the time. I'd been in Indiana, I went through Fairmont, I visited his gravesite, it was early in the morning, nobody was around. I reached down and I took a bunch of the grass off the top because I thought it would have his DNA in it or something. And I, it just ended up in this bag. And so, and then the highway patrolman was like, why are there rolling papers with it? And I was like, oh God, how am I gonna explain this? Just tell the truth, Mark. And I look at him and I say, because one night me and a bunch of my James Dean fan friends rolled it up and smoked some of it. <laughs> and this is the truth. We had actually done this. Actually, the truth is that it had just been me alone, but uh, I thought I could get away with that. So anyway, you know, I, I knew the highway patrolman and the cops knew we had been naked driving. I knew one of the uh, big pickup trucks we passed had pulled over and called from a payphone and reported us. And so I was, you know, you know, I think they were very smart. They thought, well, let's pull them over and search the car and we'll probably find something worse. 
But instead, they found something weird. You know, it's, I, I looked like some kind of freak, like, oh, it looks like marijuana, but it's not. You can't do anything. At least I thought that's what they were thinking, so I started to get really paranoid. And, you know, uh, then they, I thought, now they have something to prove. So they put me in the back of the highway patrolman's car with my handcuffs still on. They handcuff Buck, and they put him back in one of the cop cars. And the whole time I'm thinking, oh, this is just really getting out of control. And I'm watching them search my car, and the car's wiggling. I'm thinking, God, is, is there anything else in that car that I forgot about? You know, my car was filled with clothes, food, tapes, stuff. I just never, years had been in there. And right as I'm thinking this, all of a sudden, one of the cops has his hand between the, my two front seats, deep in the console, and he's trying to pull something out. And I think, as I'm seeing him do that, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. And right as I'm thinking that, he yanks out this filthy, crumpled up brown paper bag. And in my head, I'm going, no, no, oh my God, I, I can't believe it. That bag is even worse than the James Dean grave grass. That's something else I forgot, and I have no idea how I'm going to explain what's in that bag. Let me see if I can explain to you guys what it was, because I had a hard enough time explaining it to them. You remember this? You know the Smiths, the band in the 80s? I was a huge fan, and I'd gone to see the Queen is Dead tour when it came to the Bronco Bowl in Dallas. And um, I was right in the front of the stage, and at one point in the show, Morrissey, like, took off his sweat-soaked T-shirt and tossed it into the crowd, and everyone dove on and tore it apart like wild animals. And I got a huge chunk of it, like the collar and the front of it. And later that week at school, people started offering me huge amounts of money for this thing. They're like, I'll give you $100 for that, because you could just smell Morrissey on his sweat. And so I started selling little chunks of it, like $30 and $20. And I was like, I could make a lot of money. And one day, I was in a head shop in Denton, Texas, and I saw that they sold these tiny, itty-bitty little Ziploc bags, like for crack rocks. You know what I'm talking about? And you could buy like a hundred of them for a dollar. And so I, 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 I had a great business idea. I said, I know what I'll do. I'll take Morrissey's shirt and I'll cut it into tiny little white squares. And I'll put each one of these white squares into one of these Ziploc bags. And I'll sell them for 20 bucks a pop and I'll make like five grand. You know, it's art. And so I actually went to the trouble to do this. And of course, when I did that, nobody wanted to buy it anymore. They were just like, what the hell? So I, somebody gave me like $10 for one once, and I rolled that up, and I took all the little Ziploc bags with all the little white squares of Morrissey's shirt in them, and I put them in this brown paper bag, and I shoved it deep in between my two seats in the console, forgot about it, it was buried under a year of Whataburger wrappers and big gulp cups. And, you know, uh, I was just sitting there thinking, how am I going to explain this to the cops? And as I'm thinking it, I'm watching them, they go back to the cop car, and they're up at my car again, and they put all their rubber gloves on, and they've gotten out their drug testing kits. And they've got blue vials of liquid, you know, and droppers, and they're taking with tweezers and the Morrissey shirt out of the thing, and they're putting it in the blue <laughs> droppers, and they're on the radio back to headquarters or whatever, you know, they're looking at the James Dean grass again, and they're really talking, they're very serious about it. They eventually calmed down and they opened the doors and conference with me and they were like, explain the contents of this car. So I had to tell them these stories over and over again. And they just kept looking at me. And the whole time they weren't bringing up the naked driving, which was the whole point. And I knew that they'd pulled us over for this. So I was constantly, as I told these stories, on the edge of my seat waiting for them to spring it on me, you know. And I didn't know what to say. So we were all like trying to psych each other out. It's what it felt like, you know, what's real, what is truth, you know. And uh, so finally, everybody broke everybody down because they eventually unhandcuffed me, they unhandcuffed Buck, they put us both in the front seat of my car, which was a good sign. The two cops left, they took Morrissey's shirt, they took the James Dean Graygrass. Buck and I are sitting there in the front seat, we haven't even spoken yet, we're emotionally and physically exhausted. 
And the highway patrolman is walking up to my car and he's angrily writing out this paperwork. And I'm waiting and, and finally he comes up and he goes, okay, Mr. Allen, we are charging you with, and I swear, right as I was about to, in commiseration, open my mouth and say, like an idiot, Look, I know this is all about the naked driving. I just want you to know I'm really sorry. I learned my lesson. Instead, he takes his ticket off and he goes, We're charging you. We're giving you a ticket for an expired inspection sticker on your license plate. $40 fine. And I just said, Oh, okay. And Buck didn't say anything. And he said, Have a nice day. And he went back to his car. And so the naked driving never came up. So I took the ticket and I shoved it deep in the center console of my <laughs> car, started it up. We headed back to Austin, and anyone who saw anything else is just imagining things. When I was 16, I was living in San Antonio, Texas, and Roxanne was pretty much my best friend. Roxanne was a very gothy girl that wore a very pale foundation and penciled in many of her features. She had a beauty mark she would pencil in at the end of a particularly long night of parting. It would become sort of more of like an inky comet that was sort of jetting around her face towards her ear. She was a bad girl, but she loved me, you know, and for the 90% of the time that she was dissing other people or making fun of them, it was so great to be on that side of it with her. But the 10% of the time that you were the person being made fun of or threatened, it sucked. But the 90% was so good, you dealt with it. Roxanne and I would go out a lot. There was a club in San Antonio that we would go to, and I, of course, was too young to get in. But she found on the patio the fence that surrounded the back of the club. There was a loose plank, which I really think she loosened with her brute force. She would get into the club with her ID because she was 20, and then I would go around to the fence, and I would sneak in this little thing she made for me, and she would lick her hand and press the top of it against mine to sort of imprint the stamp of the evening. And we would party there, and we would have a good time, and she'd sneak me drinks, and it was awesome. One night, after a really intense go, there was an after party that we heard about. So we loaded up some of our friends in uh, our friend Robert's Miata, and we drove to this hotel. Now, everyone knew this hotel was a really seedy, bad place. No one ever stayed there, no families. It was basically a front for people to have drug parties and get hookers. So we pull into the parking lot and we go upstairs and literally when you open the door to the hotel room, the first thing you see on that little table that's always right immediately by the window when you walk in is like a Scarface style mountain of cocaine just sitting there. There's maybe 40, 50 people in the room. The curtains right by that window were just open. Like that's the kind of place it is. Don't shut the curtains. Everyone in the parking lot can see our big Scarface mountain of cocaine. It's no big deal. We start sort of uh, hanging out with everyone in the party, and it turns out that it's three or four rooms connected. At this point, right when we get there, I'm not feeling good. I'm a lightweight, and Roxanne loves making fun of me for that. She's always like, girl, why are you such a lightweight? We got a party, girl. And I'm just like, Roxanne, I just want to go home, and she's not hearing it. Someone's passing around some weed. I smoke a little, thinking it'll improve the way I feel. It just makes me feel worse and more polluted and hazy. And at one point, I lose her. 
And I go into the bathroom, and then I come out, and I can hear her cackling at the table in the other room. <laughs> oh, girl. She's calling someone Minerva, which she loved doing. I never got it. But she'd say, oh, Minerva. I never understood. And uh, I went up to the table, and she was sitting with like four or five people around the giant mountain of cocaine, which was shrinking rapidly. And I went up to her, and I just sort of sat on the dirty carpet next to her. I leaned my head on her lap, and I said, Roxanne, I just want to go home. And she said, no, no, girl, we got partying to do. Now, right as I'm sitting there, the door opens, and this haggard woman walks in. She had like a dirty pink tank top and an acid-washed denim miniskirt and flip-flops. So she came in. And in this voice, she looked at everyone, very deep, husky voice. She said, hi, I'm Simone. And everyone parted for Simone. Simone takes out a little bag, and she starts going through it, and it hits me immediately. Oh, Simone's the dealer. And that's why everyone's very excited. I am leaning on Roxanne, and Roxanne's talking to Simone. Oh, girl, I love your hair. And Simone's like, ah, and they're cackling and laughing together. And I'm just sort of slowly fading away. And at a certain point, I just completely black out. And the next thing I know, I'm being shaken awake, and I look up, and Roxanne is handing me this pipe. I'm like, no, Roxanne, I, I can't smoke. I just don't feel good. And she said, oh, girl, don't be a bump on a log. Come on, Minerva. Take a hit, it's just weed. So I take it, and I take the lighter, and I inhale. And the first thing that hit me as strange was that the weed made a really intense crackling sound in the pipe. And the next thing that hit me was that the center of my neck felt like a hot balloon was blowing up in it, like I was choking. And I looked up at Roxanne, and at this point I was crying, I was like, asking her for help Roxanne (coughs) I'm coughing and she slaps her leg pitches her head back and she goes ah girl you just smoke crack and as I look up to her for help I sort of go down on all fours and at this point I'm under the table and as the lights in my head go out I look up Simone's dirty acid washed denim skirt where I see her pendulous testicles and dead tiny penis vibrating as she huskily laughed and i didn't see that coming that was the fabulous david crab the newest member of our staff who also co-hosts another story show and podcast called ask me we call his story suspicious packages to electric boogaloo Finally today, we have one of the godfathers of the story scene, Andy Christie, the creator of The Liar Show, who tells only the truth here. This is risky business. So I am um, driving up Amsterdam Avenue on the way to meet a brand new client uh, for lunch, and I'm not looking forward to it because uh, business meetings are kind of out of my my comfort zone, uh, which really doesn't even qualify as a zone at all. It's so, so tiny, my comfort zone is actually kind of uncomfortable. Um, but at meetings, I just tend to act wrong, you know, I will uh, tend to either be overly formal, like, you know, kind of bowing a little when I shake their hand, or, you know, overly, overly familiar, like asking questions about their wives and children in a way that could come across, you know, predatory. <laughs> so, I am, um, I'm driving and I'm basically worrying, you know, on the way up, my cell phone rings in the seat next to me in the car. And I pick it up, and it's the client, and he's calling to say that he's running a little bit late. Um, 
which is good and bad. You know, on the one hand, it means you know shorter meeting if he's late, uh, but also it means he's not going to know that I was on time, and you know, being punctual is really all I have going for me. <laughs> um, but I tell him, you know, no problem, and I hang up as soon as I can because I hate those assholes who are always on their phones in the car. Besides, it's um, illegal. Um, which is why, like 30 seconds later, I'm pulled over on the uh, corner of 73rd Street and Amsterdam <laughs> Avenue, and there's a cop with my driver's license and registration back in his squad car, you know, typing into his computer. And a couple seconds later, a second uh, police car uh, kind of screeches to a diagonal halt against the front bumper of my car, almost as if he's like intentionally blocking my escape. And then the first cop uh, is back by the uh, driver's side door, and he says, uh, out of the vehicle, sir, and I got out of the vehicle, and he spins me around and kind of folds me over the roof of my car, and he handcuffs me. And he leads me back to his uh, squad car and is kind of like sideways, crabbly, you know, awkward motion and folds me into the backseat of his car, slams the door, gets into the front, slams the door, and I sit and I look through the bulletproof glass and the windshield to see another cop get into my car and drive it away. It's like, this is why I hate meetings. <laughs> you know, so far this is like the worst, worst meeting ever. So I asked him, you know, what, what's going on? He said, well, I stopped you because you were uh, talking on a cell phone while you were operating a moving vehicle. But after checking, I find out that uh, you're under arrest now because you have been driving with a suspended uh, license for the last three years. Uh, I said, basically, you know, what do you mean? Um, he says, it was a $60 uh, ticket you didn't pay back in 2006. He says, uh, you must have gotten the um, reminders and the suspension notice you know, and, and the court order. Um, and um, yeah, you know, I must have, but at the time I, I rarely opened uh, my mail. Um, because you, know, you open some of that stuff, you don't know what kind of wheels you're going to start rolling. You know? um, I saw it as just kind of an exquisitely, you know, exquisite you know, form of, of passive resistance rather than the catastrophic functional breakdown that it probably uh, was. Um, so I asked him what um, that original three-year-old uh, $60 ticket was for, and he says it was for uh, talking on a cell phone while you were driving <laughs> the car, which is how I found out that I am that asshole who's always on the phone. So he takes me off, he takes me to the precinct, uh, like on 100th Street, and uh, first thing he does is he, um, he, uh, he asks me if I'm, if I'm carrying, and he says it uh, in the way that your accountant asks if you have any more, you know, deductions. And I know he means drugs, and I'm immediately kind of gripped by this irrational fear that I'm wearing the same jeans I was wearing in 1969. And never, you know, never changed. Um, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, but he takes all my stuff. You know, he's my wallet, goes through my pockets, actually takes my belt and my shoelaces, and I want to say, really, you really do that? You do, you know, but I don't want to be overly familiar with this guy. And I want to be like his best, you know, ever. Um, and then he says that, he says that uh, you're going to have to go downtown, and downtown like sounds scary in that context, he's going to have to go downtown, but we're going to have to keep here at the precinct uh, for a few hours until we get some drivers uh, to take you down there, and he gave me a choice. He said you can stay in this, this is kind of like a nice plexiglass holding area in the Barney Miller part of the uh, uh, precinct, you know, with the coffee and the donuts and everybody making jokes and stuff. And, um, uh, only there is the crack uh, guy uh, in there now which has peed all over himself. So he says, uh, or you can stay inside. Um, so I pick inside, sounds like a private suite. And it turns out that inside is behind like a big heavy steel door that actually clanks, you know, when they close it. 
and behind that door is a corridor with this glazed like institutional cinder block with about six uh, cells with steel bars and uh, little slots in them that for passing you know food trays through which reminds me I'm supposed to be at a lunch, lunch meeting um, and a stainless steel toilet with no lid so you can't bash your brains out while you're in there puts me in there and clanks the, the, the door uh, shut and uh, I turn around, there's only one, there's only one uh, light out in the corridor in front of the um, uh, cells, and it's like casting prison bar shadows across my chest. <laughs> you know, like in an Alfred Hitchcock uh, movie. And I start wondering, when do I start doing those hash marks, you know, on the wall, one minute, two minutes, three minutes. Um, um, and then, uh, like, two minutes later, I catch uh, my reflection in the surveillance mirror out in the corridor, and I'm actually... Uh, like this, with my arms through the bars, you know, staring out to the light. Apparently, that's what you do when you're in a jail cell. It's like in the movies, it's like a flower turning to the sun. And I stay like that for like six hours, um, pressed against the bars like a dog in an elevator, you know, waiting for the doors to open. Just there uh, for like six hours until two cops show up and they drive me, drive me downtown. When we get downtown, where I'm supposed to see the judge. Um, it says, first you'll have to wait until, you know, there's a line. People want to see the judge. You have to wait, and they put me in a thing called the, the, the bullpen, um, which is a bigger cell with about 50 people in it, um, like myself, only, like, way worse. Um, and one of the guys is there because he beat the shit out of his um, kind of a tiny Asian dry cleaner because he lost a button on his favorite shirt. And another guy uh, who's actually dealing drugs, like, in the cell. <laughs> And I want to say, like, can I get in trouble with this? You know, first of all, first of all, how did he get that shit in here? I mean, they took my Listerine strips. How did he get that, you know, in here? So I am, you know, scared. Um, and uh, it's Friday night. By now, it's like about 10 o'clock. Uh, the court closes at midnight. Um, the penal justice system doesn't work on the weekends. If I don't see a judge in a couple of hours, I'm going to spend the weekend, three days, with these guys in this cell, which makes me want to cry. Uh, but I know that that will make me their bitch. Um, and that makes me want to cry more. Um, and then I remember how old and out of shape I am, and for the first time in my life, I'm happy about it. Which makes me want to, you know, cry. Again. Um, but uh, everybody else there is like having a great time, they're telling jokes, they're talking, they're doing these like, really complicated handshakes. Um, you know, it's a club. And um, uh, until this guy, this like giant, who's wearing a hat, um, not a baseball cap, but like a fedora, stands up and clears his throat and everybody quiets down. Um, and it's like if the guy had like a baton, he would have tapped his music stand. They form a circle and he begins uh, talking. And he says, um, he says, if you ever leave a puddle of your own blood behind at a crime scene, a couple of drops of ammonia will destroy any DNA evidence. <laughs> He says, that's why I always, always carry a little vial of ammonia around with me. <laughs> and everybody uh, is like, that's the way to go. It sounds right. <laughs> that's, that's total sense. And then he, he kind of goes through some, like bullet points about living in this. Maybe that's where the phrase came from. I don't know. Bullet points about living, living, you know, living, living in the system. And it's like we're wrapped. We're into this. If we, you know, if they let us have sharp pencils, we would have been taking, taking notes. And uh, it dawns on me, we're taking a meeting. And I'm like digging it. Um, then he kind of opens it up to general discussion. And... Um, <laughs> 
some guy brings up um, this scheme he's come up with that involves uh, forged or stolen student metro cards. And it's based on a really like baroque and inaccurate bunch of mathematics. And I can't help myself. I'm pretty good at math. I raise my hand. <laughs> and I say, you know, it's the whole like risk-reward calculation is totally out of whack. Um, it's not going to work. And the giant says, exactly, right on. And he gives me a high five. And he gives me one of those complicated <laughs> And I'm in. Um, so a few more bullet points. And you know, we, we, we wrap up and just kind of mingle, you know, post-meeting uh, mingling. And the guy uh, asks me, he says, uh, you know, what are you in for? Again, like they actually ask that. Um, and um, I didn't want to say, you actually say that. I didn't want him to know for some reason this is my first time, because if it wasn't obvious. Uh, I said, what are you in for? I said, a suspended license. He said, me too. Bullshit charge. A couple of hours later, I do finally get to see uh, the judge, uh, and the giant is there with me in the courtroom. He's, he, he's up before me, and I find out that um, he is actually in there for driving with a suspended license. Um, uh, while he was on, on parole for assaulting his father in a rehab <laughs> clinic over a drug dispute. <laughs> Bullshit charge. <laughs> uh, when I get up to see the judge uh, myself, they reduced my charge from a misdemeanor to a, a moving violation. I'm a little disappointed because like any idiot can get a ticket. But I pay my ticket and they let me leave and I walk, you know, crossing at the green to the subway. And the next morning I call my client, um, to reschedule because I am ready for his bullshit meeting now. <laughs> <laughs>that's all for now folks thanks to the band people like us for some of the sound collages you heard today risk is created and hosted by me kevin allison our producer is michelle walson our story producer is david crab our sound engineer is nick montalbano our story editors are andy croner and jeff mercel our episode editor is mike cades our associate producers are madison perry nina moses and katherine green and don't forget what the Japanese say about risk. Don't brew tea in your navel.